Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 210. My guest for this episode is Greg Banks. Greg is a photographer and a visual storyteller. I found out about Greg's work because I'm doing a bunch of topics for Kentucky, because that's where I'm going. And I was looking for some interesting things. And I forget exactly what I put into Google, but I was looking for not necessarily paranormal type of stuff, but I guess sort of mysticism and in, in, in folklore in Kentucky. And there's no one better than him to talk about that subject. So when I reached out to Greg, he sent me this thesis that he had done which was the impetus for doing a lot of these photographs. Now, Greg's grandfather in eastern Kentucky was a snake handler, and he had a church house. And so that sort of sets the scene for Greg's interest in this topic and sort of you know colored his perspective and some of the experiences throughout his life. So in addition to his own family's history, Greg did a lot of research for his thesis because there's a lot of interesting beliefs and a lot of interesting stories in Appalachia in eastern Kentucky. There are urban legends that you may hear of in other places like the Goatman, which we talk about. But then also a belief in sort of supernatural abilities and witchcraft and things like that. So I'm supremely interested in this topic. And Greg has a really interesting process that he does to create photographs that are not just the thing that he photographed. I honestly think I can't describe it very well and do it justice. So go to the show notes for this episode and you will find a link both to his website and to his Instagram account where you can see these pictures. Um, there's a section that I wanted to read for you. Greg talks about this, but this is a small section that I found just really, really interesting on a preacher named Sherman Lawson, who was from Harlan, Kentucky. And it says, Sherman Lawson was a preacher in Harlan, Kentucky, who in 1912 believed the Lord moved on him and told him to walk 14 miles across the mountain from Path Fork to Wallens Creek, the place where my grandparents would later live. Lawson came upon a big white house where a young girl named Norma Blanton, who was deceased for over 24 hours, was laid out for burial. While the coffin was being made, he walked over to the girl's mother and asked if he could pray for her daughter. Lawson then walked up to the dead child, grabbed her by the hand, and began to pray. The girl then rose from the dead. Norma Blanton lived until she was 80. In 1932, Lawson also raised another person named Mary Christian from the dead. Now, I know that probably the majority of people listening to that will be like, well, that is scientifically impossible. And maybe, but I think there's a lot of value in 
preserving these stories and beliefs and the history of the region. For the majority of my life from, you know, high school to now, I've been very scientifically minded and I need to see the evidence and I need to see the proof. And I think that's important. But I'm also coming around a lot more on the idea that there's a lot of things that the science that we know of can't necessarily prove or disprove yet. And so I've softened a lot, I think, on my sort of hard stance and I'm much more open to the potential for things. I'm no longer Scully. I'm like in between Scully and Mulder. And so having a conversation like this with Greg is really a treat for me. Like this is really, really fascinating stuff. And so again, I would implore you to go check out his websites because you'll get a lot of the history in the, the photo descriptions and things like that. And even use that as a companion to listening to this episode. So if, if you have your computer handy, you can check out his Instagram and, and look at some of the photos that we're talking about and describing. In the show notes for this episode, there is also a link to my Patreon account that is a subscription-based service where you can give monthly and get some cool kickbacks. And it keeps these episodes coming. It actually is going this month to the publication of my latest zine, which is being sent to print as we speak. All right, folks, enjoy this conversation with Greg Banks. So yeah, so I'm going to be going to Kentucky. And in addition to episodes that I'm doing there, I've been doing some episodes in advance. So I want to try to place the context of this conversation in the geography of Kentucky. And I'm going to get to to your thesis and the work that you do and the experiences that, um, you know, influence that. So uh, initially, or actually like a lot of these stories, they're coming out of eastern Kentucky. Is that correct? Yes. And your grandfather lived in... Uh, Winchester, which you said was outside of Harlan. No, my my mother was born in Harlan. Um, my parents met there. My dad lived there. I think his his dad um, or his family traveled around a little bit, and they were in Harlan for a little bit. Um, but when my parents got married, they moved to Winchester, and that's where I was born. Which again, I think is about, and I could be wrong about this, but I think it's about a hundred miles from from Harlan, if I remember right. Um, and then, you know, for us, like I said, I, I have almost no memories of Winchester. So Harlan is sort of the home base where my grandparents were on that side of the family. And um, even, you know, up until now, um, my parents own my grandparents' house. And so, like, it is the place where, you know, we still go and, uh, you know, in some ways, it, it it is the home in Kentucky. Is this was this area impacted by the recent flooding at all? Um, no, but I have family that were in that area. Um, yeah, I, I just um, 
I'd been kind of keeping up through Facebook and seeing like, I think it's, it was pretty bad from what I understand. Yeah. In, I think that's more over toward Jackson, which is, um, it's, it's not too far. It's still Eastern Kentucky. And Eastern Kentucky butts up against the Appalachian mountain range, right? Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, I would say it's definitely Appalachia. Um, definitely, you know, I mean, I would say it's, it's interesting because it's, you know, I feel like there's a time when it was really booming and, um, and I don't think that's happening now, but, you know, but I will say, you know, I mean, I, I, there's so many things that, so many thoughts I have on it. Like, I always think like, man, you know, that history, like if somebody could find a way to, to make that history something for tourism, it would be really amazing. Um, cause the history is really interesting. And, um, and, and the other thing is I'll say, I, I mean, I don't want to make anybody mad, but I, I did do the, like the, there's a place where you can go, um, into the coal mines, you, you take a, a cart into the coal mines and, and they kind of give you this history, but, um, they keep it really clean. Like there's no sense that the, um, mine operators were keeping the organizers out and that are not enough of that. I was, should say, like, I mean, if, if you read how sort of bloody that history was, it's, it's kind of disappointing. Um, to see, you know, I mean, I guess at the time I was in thesis and I went through and I was just like, man, they don't really touch on that enough for me. Are you referencing sort of the dangerous conditions of the coal mines and the, the, the protests that have been happening, you know, up to, up to even, I think last year, right? Yeah, there were some last year for sure, but, but the ones in the 1930s were like, um, and then again, I think, you know, if you see, there's a film called a, Harlan County, USA, which is um, probably the most famous film about the area. Um, and that one kind of takes place in the 1970s. Um, but, the, but the 30s, in the 30s, um, it was really violent. I mean, they were, the, the cops, I mean, you have to keep in mind, like, they owned everything. They owned the cops. They owned the judges. Um, there was so much money coming from the, the mine operators that, um, they pretty much own the towns. And so, um, that whole history is, um, pretty interesting. It's always been kind of interesting to me. And I, I wrote down this quote cause, and I think I, I cut out a little bit that was in my, I don't know if it was in my thesis or not, but this, it kind of gives you an idea. Like, um, the quote is something like, um, you don't know where you're at. You're in Harlan County. They've got the biggest gang of dynamiters on earth here. And I always think of that quote and um, I think it's, it's a pretty powerful quote for that time, but you know, labor organizers weren't welcome and, and they would, you know, they would shoot at them. They would do anything to keep them out. Um, and you know, and if you could get killed for trying to join, join uh, a union basically, um, and it, it feels weird to think of that right now or at, in this time, but you know, it's just, I mean, 
it felt a little bit when they started getting national attention. I, I think it started to go away that, you know, that whole, um, they, they started to get national attention and then, um, that history or, or those, um, they had to sort of do something and, and then they kind of, um, things started to change. They started arresting people and those kinds of things. So it, that history, um, started to change and then it kind of, um, picked back up in the, in the 1970s again and, um, guns came out again and, um, but I know there was a little bit of it last year, but um, I, my impression is not on that level that of the past. And um, Harlan is like a, it's called a home rule city, right? So they are able to sort of make their own laws and I can't, I guess, police their own laws. Um, I don't know. That's a good question. You tell me. Okay. You, you researched it. Yeah, no, I, don't, I didn't know this. I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, it's not um, something I had ever heard of, but I guess essentially they have like the permission of the state to uh, run things the way that they see fit. And, you know, I'm, I'm certainly no expert on this, but uh, that's just something I saw in my research. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I did not know that. Um, you know, I, I, I guess it makes sense. It's, it's, it was pretty interesting to think of in terms of, of that town, mm. you know, I mean, I, I think that when, I, every time I go to the town, I always think like, man, um, there's an opportunity here and nobody's taking advantage of it. And, um, that's, you know, that's my take on it, but hopefully I don't make too many people mad by saying that, but I, it, it is, a, you know, and I, the other thing I should say, you know, really is I'm an outsider. Like, you know, I was born there. Um, I certainly go there, um, but I, I, I still am an outsider. I remember, you know, probably, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, I went up and I was um, just making pictures like I, I do. Um, and, I, and I was just taking pictures. And I was walking downtown and I came upon this guy who had come out of his church. I think it was a Sunday. And um, I, I walked up to him and I'm not, shy about asking, Hey, can I make your picture? Um, and I, and I asked him and he's like, no, but make a picture of my beautiful church. And, and so I, I tried to connect with him. I was like, you know, you know, my family's from here and, um, you know, nothing was going to penetrate that, that whole thing where, you know, you're the outsider. And I tried, I mean, but I could, he would not let me make his picture. And, um, you know, I, I think that's pretty, pretty standard. Um, I think a, a lot of what people know of like Appalachia comes from the media that they consume, uh, movies and books and things like that. Um, and I think often it's, it's not portrayed that favorably. Um, right. Absolutely. And so, you know, it, I know quite well that as anywhere, you're talking about hardworking people, especially if you're talking about people working in coal mines, doing hard, dangerous, for for many years, very necessary work um, that, you know, are, are plagued by often poverty and the things that come along with poverty, like substance abuse and, and alcoholism and stuff like that. Um, right. I'm wondering just maybe from your experience as a young person going back and forth 
sort of how you would describe the area and and maybe some of the experiences outside of the theme of your work that that we'll get to. Well, I mean, I think all of those things have existed in my family. Certainly substance abuse has been huge. Um, you know, I think, you know, but I, but I also think, you know, I mean, one of the reasons I, I kind of want to make work about it, you know, for, it took some convincing for me to make, you know, art about it, you know, because um, it, it felt like something early on that I was running from, like, you know, I knew that history. I watched the news enough as a kid to know, like, you know, it's like the, the way they're treated and even still like, you know, we're either the Trump voter or were they were, you know, the religious, um, crazies. And, and, and I think like, you know, first I'm neither of those things. And so like, you know, I think like for me, it's a way of saying like, well, maybe we're more diverse than you think. Mm. Um, you know, and it's a way of kind of opening up that, that dialogue to, you know, not everybody's one thing. And, you know, and I think there's a diverse group of people there, um, and an interesting group of people. Um, you know, when, when I got into thesis for me, like a part of it was, um, figuring out that like, I want to make work. Um, but I'll say, this is probably the best way to tell you. Like I, there's this, there's a story where, um, I was trying to figure out what I was going to make work about. It was in my first year of thesis and, um, my advisors were kind of hinting at like, you know, go and make work there and, and, you know, go and photograph and, um, and, you know, and I'd done a couple portraits of my dad and my mom. And, and so it was like, you know, continue that, you know. Um, and, I, and I was still, like I said, I was searching. I was searching, what am I going to do for this thesis, you know. And um, I went a few times and I basically, I did not want to photograph my family. Like there was this thing just keeping me from photographing them. Um, and, and I'd also talked to a friend who said, you know, that's not your work. Don't go make documentary photographs of, of, you know, Eastern Kentucky or Appalachia. And, you know, it's not really your work. And, and, um, but what did happen was I went and I started reading. I started, I'd taken all these, uh, a couple books on the area and I started reading and, um, I, found this story about witchcraft and I was like, well, this is interesting. This could be my work. You know, this is something I can work with. Um, but you know, it's something I'd never heard of before. So like, it, it wasn't an impression I had of the area at all. Um, and so like for me, the, you know, my impressions were similar, I guess, early on to other people's like I, I, I moved to Virginia when I was really young and, um, or I should say I moved back. And at that point, you know, I had really thick, um, Kentucky slang and, and, you know, I learned really quick as a kid, like, um, change it, change the way you talk, you know? Um, I think like there's things that, you know, that I know I probably would say if I were still there that I don't, my, my dad, and one that he uses a lot instead of fire, it's far and things like that. And there's a lot of like the slang 
that like I learned really quick when I got to school, like change the way you talk, don't use those words. And, and so like, you know, I think early on my impressions of, of that area, um, like I knew the media impression for sure. And I think it influenced my opinion. Um, when I was in college, I remember a friend saying to me, I remember West Virginia passing uh, a law that you could eat roadkill and a friend joking with me about that. And I was like, well, wait, first off, I'm not from West Virginia, but, um, but, but I, I think like all of these things kind of made or made me feel like, you know, this is bad. I don't want to be a part of this. Um, and then in, and I, I, in 1999, my, um, grandmother passed away and I went up for the funeral. Um, it went up like a, at the beginning of the week. I think the funeral wasn't to the end of the week. Um, and my uncle asked my dad, my brother and I to help him dig my grandmother's grave. And, and it was such a, like really cultural experience and something I'd never experienced. And it, it really sort of impacted me. And I was like, wow, you know, this would never happen in, in Virginia or, or maybe it would, but it, it wasn't going to be my experience in the city. Um, and so it, it really kind of, it started to make me think about, you know, what I was doing or what, it, how I was thinking about the place. The other thing that kind of happened on that trip was, um, the day of the funeral, I remember sitting in the back of the car, my brother and I, as my parents were driving and every car stopped like the, it wasn't like, you know, I think some cars will stop in the city, but, um, a lot don't too. And like every car stopped. Um, and the other thing I should say about the, the digging was guys came up on their day off and, um, wanted to pay respect to my grandmother who worked for the funeral home and helped us dig. And like that whole thing was, was huge. It, it really affected my impression of, of the area. And I was like, man, you know, this would never happen anywhere else. You know, for all the issues that maybe are here, there's something really beautiful about it too. And, um, I don't want to lose sight of that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think like in the beginning, though, I would say like my impression has evolved and, the more research I've done, the more I kind of feel like having an understanding to help me kind of um, understand, you know, decisions my family has made and decisions um, that, you know, uh, of even in the region. And so, yeah. Yeah, you're digging your grandmother's grave was really fascinating for me when I was reading that thesis. I think you even maybe have a photo of your dad or an uncle or someone digging it and sort of standing in it. Yeah. So, so I, I was trying, like originally I was thinking like, yeah, I want to be respectful. I don't want to take any pictures. Um, and um, what had happened was my mom and my aunts came up and, and they um, brought fried chicken and everybody's sitting on a fr tombstone eating fried chicken. <laughs> um, and, and so for me, like, I was like, man, I, okay, I won't make a picture of, of the grave digging, but maybe I'll make a picture of this. And I went to get the camera out of my car and I, I got there and I, I was like, 
I got back and everybody was kind of done. And my uncle was already down in the grave digging. So I was like, all right, well, I might as well um, make a picture of it. And, um, and I was glad I did. There's a, there's another story with him that I, I, you know, probably affected some of the things when I was doing my, um, my bachelor's degree and it was in photography too, but I, I, I went up to Kentucky and, um, I was going to do a project around just sort of my family in Appalachia and I'd made, um, picture of another uncle or two other uncles. And I went up to this uncle who, um, he knew the history, like he, he was well aware of the exploitation and, um, and I, and I put him in front of a beware of dog sign and his impression was he felt kind of exploited. And so for the longest time, like, you know, really up until, you know, years later when I went to get my master's, um, I avoided Appalachia as a subject. It's like, I can't do this. Um, other than, you know, the, the image on the, on the, um, digging the grave. That was the kind of, that was the one time I'd made a picture. Um, I guess that was a few years after I think I was, I came up in 95 and did this stuff for school, 95 or 96. And then 99, my grandmother died. So, um, but yeah, it, that felt really transformative to me. And, and I, I don't really know how to describe it. It's like, I knew it was a, an experience not everybody was going to have, but there's something pretty cathartic about it as well. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll say overall, like for the whole project, uh, I think you treated it in a really non judgmental way. And with uh, respect and a sort of reverence for it. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely understand not wanting to feel exploitative. I even too, like, am sort of, you know, picking my questions and, and sort of my words a bit carefully. Because I even, in reading some of this and, and in thinking about the grave, like, I'm thinking about books I've read. And that reminds me of, like, a Flannery O'Connor novel, right? And, and she... Right you know, writes about some pretty <laughs> heinous characters um, and maybe had a bit of a troubled past herself. So I'm not trying to like equate the people of the region to that, but, you know, I read the violent bear it away. And in that it's a, a nephew is uh, like the whole story is, is him burying his great uncle in the yard. Um, right. And yeah. <laughs> yeah and you know, um, the, uh, the sort of traveling preacher theme is, is peppered throughout her work too. Well, and I think too, like, you know, for, for me, like I, I'm aware, like, you know, there's certainly some characters in my family, but they're, they're my, yeah, they're my uncles or whatever. And I, I kind of just, um, enjoy them. I, you know, I think, you know, I'm at this point where, um, a lot of them have passed away in the last few years. And so it's, it's been interesting to kind of, um, watch, kind of see that and realize like, man, you know, maybe I didn't spend enough time with them or, or those kinds of things. And, you know, and my grandfather, you know, he was a huge character in the, the whole thing. Like he's the, the person who set it up, set up the whole idea of, you know, making work about this. Like, um, cause the thing I wanted to understand, I wanted to understand him and his, um, 
why he made some of the decisions he made, you know, I mean, he, he certainly, you know, there's, there's a story of, of, well, there's, there's a couple of stories about him, but, um, one of them was, um, before he married my grandmother, um, he shot his father-in-law and did a couple of years in jail, um, or shot and killed his grand, his father-in-law yeah. from his first marriage. And, and so, you know, it's like, okay, I don't know anything about this. And, you know, and part of the whole thesis, the reason it kind of t- sort of took on this folklore element was after kind of talking to my oldest living aunt, like I started to realize like there were things I was never going to have answers to. I was never going to know why, um, why this happened or, or why my, you know, why he may have killed this person. And, um, there, there is a side of me that would like to maybe go see if I can find some kind of records at the courthouse. I did find one thing related to it saying he was supposed to do five years for that crime and, and he was released in three. And so, you know, that was, that was one thing, you know, and then, you know, also, um, years later, um, my mother would always talk about them, him starting a snake handling church and, and, he, so he started this church and, and I, I really just wanted to understand, like, how do you get to that? How do you get to where you think like, yeah, okay, this seems like the, the way to go. And, you know, one of the things I, I kind of recognized as I started reading is um, in that region, as so many things were changing, um, it's the only form of protest they really had. Like, you know, you've, you've joined these coal camps, um, and, you know, and they're trying to indoctrinate these farmers into, um, society and into this coal mining society. And, you know, you, you have to remember all of the, the organizers or not all, but probably most of the organizers were coming from the North and they, and they, they, you know, taking their mineral rights from their land and sometimes their land as well. And so like, um, and the, you factor in the civil war and all these things and, and you're, you're probably going to be maybe skeptical of outsiders if that's the case. And, and so like, you know, if, if the Baptist preacher comes from the North and he's, um, and he has to be trained one, you're not going to relate to him, but, but, um, Again, he's an outsider, so you're going to be skeptical as well. And so, like, you know, all of these things kind of started to come together when you see it as, like, the only place where you could really have this this thing that was yours was the church. So, for your, if you could explain two things for me. Your grandfather was a snake handler, so I'd love you to explain what that is and then also explain what the, the holiness movement was. Um, so the holiness movement movement started in 1910, um, um, with a guy named, uh, what's his, I just, uh, his name was George Went Hensley. And, um, and the story, like the story, I fell in love with the story of him because I did not know what I was going to get. Like, I didn't know anything about like how this movement started and, um, and just kind of researching, like, uh, so, 
um, Hensley goes um, to the top of this mountain. Um, it's called White Oak Mountain at Rainbow Rock, and it's in Tennessee. The key for me to the story was it was the dead of winter. Um, and he prayed about the passage about taking up serpents and a large rattlesnake comes out. And, you know, at that point he has complete control over the rattlesnake. And so like that sort of began the movement. Um, and you know, he, he, as this thing kind of took off, like these guys were rock stars. They were, they were going out to really huge audiences, like, you know, thousand four thousand people something crazy because people wanted to see what they were doing and um i I found some really cool stories around it you know just reading and one of them that that i really loved was um and i'm probably going to butcher the story but I'll, i'll do my best and um was the this um guy gets bit who lives right beside the church. Um, they take him in the church or they take, they take him back to his house. And, um, and again, if you, if you, if you get bit, um, it's kind of a test of faith. Like you can't call the doctor or, or you're forsaking God. So, so if you, you get bit, you kind of have to believe God's going to heal you. And so he's getting um, worse and work worse as the week goes on. And I guess somebody got scared and called the hospital and they sent people in. Um, and later that week he died. The next week, another guy gets bit in the church. Um, and, um, they take him over to the house and I guess the news had gotten hold of it and, and they go and they interview the first guy's wife, whose house it is. And, she said, oh, he's not going to die. Those doctors killed my husband. And so that kind of gives you an, imp- an idea of like, you know, how it is. But, you know, but the, there's videos, like if you go to YouTube, there's videos on on the movement. There's one from, I feel like, I, think, I want to say it's the late 60s. It's, it's really good. I can't think of the name of it right now, but um, but there's definitely some, some, interesting stuff on it. You know, the the other thing is like they believe if you're anointed, you can't be burned. And so like I made this image of my dad. There's a story when I was a kid where my dad um, was sleeping. And like I said, my grandfather had this church. Um, Once he closed it, we actually lived in it for a little bit. Um, And my dad's sleeping and I'm pretty young. I'm probably two or three or something. And, um, I, I pick up the lighter and it's before the lighters had the child lock. Um, and I drop the lighter on the mattress and it catches on fire. My dad wakes up and, um, he puts out the mattress. But when I was telling the, or making the image, the early version of it, you know, I had the bed on fire and it just wasn't working. And then I began to think of it like, well, you know, if you're in the church, you know, you're protected from fire. So, um, what if he's just sitting there on fire, you know, and, and, um, thinking of the story more like that. And so like the image that I made, he's, he's, um, he's sitting there on fire and I'm, I'm standing in front of him, um, with my back to the camera. And, um, you know, it was a fun one. It was one I, I had to defend in thesis. Um, um, 
I, I feel like it was one that possibly my thesis committee wanted to throw out, but I kept kind of going like, no, this one has to stay. So it's, it seems like a pivotal story. And, you know, and another story that my mom often tells is um, the story about me laying in an empty pool um, while we lived in this church and um, her ducking her head inside. Like I said, I was two, maybe. Um, and my brother pushes the pool off the hill and and the swimming pool glides down into the road. And, you know, if I'd have been anywhere but the center of the swimming pool, I'd be, I would have been dead. And my mom tells us, she's told me this story for so long that it's just like, it feels like, you know, this is just a memory. This is, you know, um, but, you know, and I, and I can't, I still can't imagine it. I tried to make an image around it. Um, something about having a swimming pool in an image, just, it felt weird. And so it never quite happened, but I, I like the idea of it for sure. It's an interesting region when you're talking about belief systems and religion because, and, and you tell me if this is a fair treatment, um, but you have uh, indigenous American groups mm -hmm. and their beliefs, superstitions, their folklore. You have uh, Christian-based religious systems and you have the traveling preachers and then something I hadn't even thought of, but you wrote that uh, there had been African slaves in the region as well, yep. likely bringing yep. like West and African. I think, you know, I mean, I think when you mesh all these things together, you, you know, I mean, I think one of the things that you do see kind of hinted at when you watch the news is that superstition, whether it's the superstition of the outsider or, or you know, sort of religious superstitions like Think about all those things meshing together, and that's kind of how I've, I've always kind of seen it. It's like all these things are meshing together, and you know, and from that, you know, also the you know the natives, the natives, you know, and you know how I, there was a big thing, and I'd quoted this book from the 1960s that certainly had some, it certainly had some racism in it for sure, um, but I'd quoted the book who, um, and I can't remember exactly the line, but it was something like, um, something like the, the mountaineer, um, married, you know, uh, Cherokee and Choctaw women from the region or something like that. It was, it was completely sort of whitewashed. And, um, and I, I went to one of my thesis meetings and, and, um, the, the, um, the one female who was on my advisor said, you cannot have this. You have to change this or get rid of it. And I, I was just like, um, I was like, and I was more joking, but I was like, well, it's a direct quote, Angela. Um, but, but yeah, she wouldn't let me sort of leave it as it was. And, and I, you know, when I, I totally got it, but I was, it was kind of fun to kind of mess with her and. So like, well, you know, it's a direct quote, you know, but it's, it's a direct quote from the 1960s. So, <laughs> so, um, but it's, you know, I think, I think of that, that sort of belief system as, you know, it's like, man, there's so much going on there. And, you know, and I think like, it's why the folklore is interesting too. 
I will say, you know, sort of researching the soap opera, the other thing that strikes me is like, um, as I started doing this, like I bought one book and one book led to another and then that book led to another. And so like, I think a lot of this has been repeated over and over through time. And so like, you know, it, it feels a little more like it's, it's law, even though I think some of them are completely ridiculous. Um, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's pretty interesting too. Like, and I still, like, I, I haven't worked on that, that work in a while, but I, I feel like, um, I still look for things that might pop up. And if I, if I find them, I may come back to it, but. Can you, um, talk about what sympathetic magic is? Um, so sympathetic magic, the way I understand it, um, is, is kind of like thinking like voodoo. So it's, it's using, um, using an object or an action, uh, that's associated with a person. Um, you know, it'd be like using a cross just for protection, you know? So, you're, so it's, it's, um, you influence things magically with, with charms or, or, you know, voodoo dolls or puppets or those kinds of things would be the best way I know to kind of explain it. Okay. And that is something that appears to be pretty prevalent throughout the region. I, you know, I don't know that the, the title came from this article I'd found, like it was the first article I'd found on witchcraft. Um, and I, you know, I think when you think about like the cross, sure. Um, beyond that, I'm not so sure. Um, but it was an article I found that, let's see, um, it was written 1914, I believe. Um, and sympathetic magic was in the title. And I was like, you know, what is this? I'm really curious about, you know, what sympathetic magic is. And, um, and then as I kept working, I kept thinking about that a way to use that as a title for the exhibition and, um, within the title of the exhibition was, um, an explanation of sympathetic magic. And, um, but you know, in terms of whether it's prevalent, I mean, uh, uh, some of the books I read sort of, um, reference grandmothers who, who, you know, and I think TV shows certainly have done it. Things like shows like justified, which is, you know, based on that region, um, they kind of reference the grandmother having power to, to see or, or those kinds of things. And, you know, I can't say honestly, that was my experience. My grandmother was, was not that, but, um, but I, you know, I think, um, apparently there are, um, some people who believe that. Okay. Sure. I have a, a point to make, but it will be helped if you could tell one particular story, um, sure. And that story is the the Goat Man of Western Kentucky. Can you can you tell us what that was? Um, yeah. So so um, I had found like images of this of this Goat Man, and I got completely enamored with it. Like I'm I'm about I was pretty close to being. Um, 
well, maybe I wasn't. I take that back. I was going to say I was about done with my thesis, but I think it was it was actually in the summer. I, I found this sort of story about a goat man in Louisville, and um, and I just became enamored with it. It was like, okay, you know, I'm here. I am dealing with Eastern Kentucky, but I I can't let this go. Like I'm curious. Um, and then I found a book. I think it's. Um, by Nathan Crouch called Goatman Flesh or Folklore. And you what you realize is there's goat men, you know, in reading this book there were there were goat men all over the country and um the particular Kentucky one was was interesting in the sense that um you know supposedly in the eighteen hundreds um the goat like creature was captured in Canada by a circus owner and the train carrying the goat man um, is going through Western Kentucky. Um, and um, the train's derailed, killing everybody. It's struck by lightning and it kills everybody. And um, the goat man in theory now is, is the only person who survives and he's living under the bridge. And the only time you can see him, is on the on on the trussle on the trend trussle, um, and you know where he lures his victims out with supernatural power, um, and you know and and I'll say you know the thing that's interesting about it to me is like if you go to YouTube, kids are still going out on that bridge and uh, or out on the trussle, and 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 there's still people dying, and so like you know that's when they say you've seen the goat man. All right, so I found this really interesting. Um, first of all, I mean, yeah, it's it sounds like an urban legend you would hear in many places, but embedded within this part of your thesis are some quotes, and it was essentially there's a quote. I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing this, but it said that it was like a cautionary way of of, of fathers telling their daughters, "Don't go to that area." With a boy so I, to Lover's Lane, right? So it's it's Lover, yeah, Lover's Lane. I couldn't remember if I put that in or not, but yeah. So so it was a way in the 1960s for fathers to tell their tell their daughters, like, yeah, don't go to to Lover's Lanes with boys. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Absolutely. And the thought that I had was that a function of storytelling and a function of folklore is that sort of safety aspect. You know, you, you tell kids stories about the monster in the woods or the witch in the woods because there's a heck of a lot mm. of stuff in the woods that can harm you or, or, or kill you or you could get lost. And so, you know, in, in reading through all these stories, uh, I think there was like a, um, a preacher named, was it Lawson, Sherman Lawson, who ra- yeah, yeah, yeah. raised a girl. That's my favorite story. I, and that was the one with, that was, a turning point. Like I started out trying to do this, this kind of witchcraft narrative. Um, when I found that I was super excited, but like it became repetitious really quick. And, um, and when I found Sherman Lawson, can we tell the story? Yeah. T- tell it real quick and um, then I'll, I'll circle back to that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so Sherman Lawson, um, he, in 1912, he believed he was called on by God to take this walk. And the thing that really drove me to the story was it was in um, the same area where my my grandparents' house was. And so, like, I, you know, it's you can just kind of feel like if you're from there, it's like, man, 
it's hard not to feel like, you know, what if my grandfather knew this guy or whatever? Um, but he, he believed he was called on to take this walk. He takes this walk. Um, and he, he comes upon this white house and there's this dead girl who's been laid out for burial for 24 hours. Um, he asked the family if he could pray for her. He goes up and he grabs her hand and, and she comes back to life and she lives until she's in her eighties. Um, according to this book by his granddaughter who, um, later I, I tried to contact actually, and I, I probably did it the wrong way. I sent her a Facebook friend request and I thought, well, okay, I want to send her a print. That was, was, was my thinking. And, and, um, it, it, she never accepted my request. And I was like, man, um, I don't know, like, I, should I send her a message maybe, but I, I never did. And, but, you know, and there, there's another story about him. There's a, there's a couple, but there was one also that said in 1932, he'd raised another woman from the dead. So it, it you know, it wasn't like it was, a you know, I guess a thing that was just, you know, a one-time thing that, you know, so, I mean, I'm curious about like the, those stories and I, I would love to, to know, know more about him. Like, I mean, that was, I guess that was part of the reason I, um, I sent her a friend request too. It was like, man, I'm, I'm curious as to, to what the story is with him. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you got any sort of sense through your research or through talking with family or just visiting the region over the years, if, a lot of these stories are held as true belief or more as like fable in the way that we were saying that like folklore can serve like a societal function. Um, I don't know. I think like, I, I do think like there's, um, I think maybe a little bit of both probably. I mean, I, I could see where like, you know, the religious, Stories like Sherman Lawson could be a way of saying, like, look, you know, um, there is power in religion. You know, I, I could see it on that end. Um, I I could also see, you know, things like, I mean, like you were saying with the goat man, it being more cautionary. Um, you know, don't do this. Um, that's a good question. Yeah, I don't, I'm trying to decide where I, I and I'm probably, you know, again, I'm probably not the best person to ask that to, but, mm. um, but it, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I don't really know what, how to answer it though. Yeah. And I was just, yeah, maybe I'm just sort of blurting out my thoughts because, uh, my brain was firing while I was reading your thesis, but I was also thinking, and, and I understand that this might be a stretch for people who, are strictly like empirical science is, is, is the answer for everything. But I don't know, maybe it's metaphysics, right? Like maybe the shared belief or the shared openness in a belief to stuff like this, you know, makes a, a space that is ripe for it to actually occur. Like maybe that sounds like an X-Files episode to some people, but I don't know. Right, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, and I even think like the isolation too, like, you know, I mean that, that idea of like, um, you're, you're, 
not so connected, which I think is probably getting harder with the with like mobile phones and um, laptops. But but like that, you're you're sort of closed off somewhat from the rest of the world, especially in that time frame. You know, um, it wasn't like everybody was. Um, it, it wasn't easy necessarily to get through the mountains for one, but you know, so. Um, I think there, there's an element of isolation in there as well that could play a role as, to that. When I was looking at your your images, which is like the the first thing I had seen of your work before you actually sent me your thesis, um, they're really brilliant. And some of them, like the Goatman image, if if I was a kid, that's something that honestly would terrify me. Um, yeah, I, I would love. Um, yeah, sorry. Go for it. Was that? Uh, so, so yeah. So like, um, yeah. I mean, I think like they had to be scare a little bit scary. I mean, you know, so much of this research for me, um, it, it sort of answered a lot of these questions I had. You know, I mean, uh, really, what I was doing for, and it was really. Um, the way I work is it, it has to be personal. Like I can't go and, uh, I mean, I can do it, but it doesn't have the same heart as, so for me, like when I make something, it has to be personal. I have to be able to feel it myself. And typically the things I make are, um, are, are about me in some way. And so like, you know, to kind of go and do all this research and then think about my grandfather in the context of this, um, this storytelling, um, it, it completely made sense. And, and it started to make, you know, some of those things he was doing make sense too. Um, there, there was another sort of folkloric story that I didn't learn until, um, I was in thesis and I'd gone up there and I was talking to my cousin and, and he, my cousin was telling me what a sort of hard man my grandfather was. And I, again, I, and I back up and say he died when I was six. So my memories of him are more kind of, um, you know, I have a few as a, uh, of him living, but most of them are, you know, from images or, or, you know, stories and, and those kinds of things. So like I always kind of say, like you know, I have more memories of him as a ghost than than being alive, and um, and so like as a kid, you know, the cemetery was on top of the hill. Um, my grandfather or my grandmother tore the farm down after he died, um, and my my aunt and uncle and their kids moved to the top of the hill. Um, beneath the cemetery, but above my grandmother's house. And so like when you, um, when it's night there, it's completely dark. But the, the other side of that were like my grandfather's things kind of lingered there for years. It was like, you know, he had a coal house. He had an old shop where he kept, you know, his, his um, tools and those kinds of things. He had a smokehouse. And so like, all these things were, there were all these signs of him still there. And so like, as a kid, my cousins and I, we would talk about it. Um, we, we would be, you know, I see him in the window, I see him wherever. And so like he became, became kind of this ghost story that we would tell. And, 
um, and just to try to scare each other. And so um, I forgot your original question, but, um, but, you know, I'd say like he, he um, was huge in terms of like the whole setup of the whole thing. Cause I, I just wanted to understand like, you know, how does somebody get to snake handling? Um, you know, how, you know, did he kill, how did he kill this person? Maybe that, you know, was his wife's father, you know, that end of it. And there's another story. And I think this is where I was going was there's another story about my grandfather that my cousin told me, which was, um, that he, um, these guys had killed his brother, um, his younger brother and tied him to rocks and tried to sink the body. Oh God. And there was talk from my cousin that my grandfather may have avenged that death. And, um, but you know, I don't really know for sure, but, and, and that's why sort of the folkloric approach, um, when I made an image around it, the, 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 the guys ended up being frogs. So, um, and it was just a way of, you know, telling a story, you know, my, my, this, this thing I, I, I go to and, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe the audience will know this, but like, I feel like I'm a horrible storyteller if I, if I'm talking, like, I feel like my dad is a great story because he has this ability to embellish. Um, and my grandfather was a great storyteller because he has this ability to, to embellish and, and I tend to want to tell the truth um, as best as I can. And so I don't really do that. But with images, I do. And, and what, what I've kind of realized is like, yeah, I'm doing the same thing. I'm doing the exact same thing that they're doing. Um, but I'm doing it visually instead of, instead of um, with words. Can you talk about the, the process that you do to make your images? Because um, at, at least to me, it's very unique and your photos are very distinct. Well, thanks. Um, well, my, so there's a lot of experimentation when I was, those images specifically, when I was in grad school, I, I was trying to figure out like, how am I going to print these? Like um, as somebody who kind of grew up in the dark room and, and learned to make prints in the dark room, there's something about having that very physical process of, you know, crafting a print, like, you know, spending three hours in the dark room making a print and they're making sure there's no dust on that print in the dark room. Um, because if you, if you have dust on, on the negative, then you're going to have like white spots on the print. And so like you take your time and you craft that print and, and I've always enjoyed that. Um, and when I got to grad school, um, I, I think like part of it was realizing that, that, you know, um, I, the digital print is really cold, you know, you press print on, on the computer screen and it comes out and maybe you make adjustments to it. Um, but it didn't really excite me. And, um, I ended up taking an independent study with a painter, um, named Scott Eagle and we kind of got together and, um, experimented with printing and we were dripping paint on, on paper and then running it through the printer and doing all this stuff. 
And at a certain point, he said, well, have you heard of this stuff called Digital Ground? And I said, no, but, um, but Digital Ground was stuff you could put on papers that normally you can't print on. So, like, if I printed on, like, some art papers, it would, the prints would flatten out because they sort of absorb the black ink. And you coat it with this stuff called Digital Ground, um, and then your blacks end up being um, much richer, but also you have your hand back in the image. So like, um, they're, um, they end up being, you know, having brush strokes and those kinds of things. But in terms of like the making of the images, um, I basically, you know, worked with what I had, which were family photographs and I scanned them and, um, sometimes I would use Photoshop, but, and then sometimes it would just be mobile phone apps. And um, it was really funny. One morning I came in and, and I was on the verge of it. I still tell my friend Addison, I, w- I was on the verge of figuring out the very thing he came in and he just kind of laid down and it just blew my mind. And because I, I felt like I, I know there's a relationship between this and, and he, my friend Addison comes in one morning and he's like, you know, there's a relationship between um, what happens with a folktale and and what's happening with the way you're using phone apps. You know, you send the image through each phone app and it changes the story a little bit, just like if, you know, you tell somebody a folktale and, and they pass it to another person and it changes a little bit and so on. And, and it was just like, man, how, um, I was like, I was trying to get there and you just come in and you're like, bam, there it is. And, and it was, it was just, it was a moment for sure. Um, for me, but like uh, basically for the images though, I, I tend to alter this, take the images I have of, you know, these sort of, um, appropriated images of family and, and, um, and sort of manipulate them to tell the stories I want to tell. I mean, that's, um, and I think if there's a sort of movement toward that right now, so I don't really feel like I'm I'm that unique in that sense. Um, I feel like you know, in terms of maybe the, the regional stories, I do feel like you know, one of the things I've discovered since sort of putting that work out there is um, there's a lot of people out there. I feel like in that region. Um, or have some connection to that region that are in the art world who are connect or are protecting the idea that um, Appalachian photography is documentary. And, you know, and so for, for me to come along and try to tell the story that's, you know, very manipulated, um, I, I don't think it's for everybody. And I, and I think like, again, I think there, there are people who, um, find it almost um, like it's it's breaking with that tradition in some way. Mm, that's interesting. You know, you have a a photo. I was just uh, looking through some of these as you were talking, um, and it is there, there's a rock that says hope, right? And it looks to be like a wooden cross with the. Uh, yeah. horizontal cross section of the cross 
having fallen on the rock and broken, which I mean, in itself is just like the universe writing its own poetry, showing that there is no hope. Um, but I also, I got a weird image in my head. I've never seen the the movie, but I read the book, The Devil All the Time. And um, there's a really particularly gruesome uh, scene that they go back to a couple of times of, of this child's father uh, nailing, you know, woodland creatures and animals. And I think the family dog to a cross. And yeah. I, yeah that, I saw the film. I did not see the movie or didn't read the book, but I, is yeah. that in the movie? I, what's that? Is that scene in the movie? Um, I can't remember. I, okay. I, was trying to, I feel like there's a hint of it. At least. I can't remember for sure though. I can't, I, you said that and I was like, I'm trying to envision. I thought you were going to say, you know, I, I feel like there's a lot that happens at that cross and, um, in this film, but do, did that happen? I'm not sure, honestly. Um, I can't remember. That's a strange film for sure. Um, the, the cross image that you're talking about. Um, so the stuff I've been working on the last, I don't know, few years. And it, a lot of times it takes me a while to figure out what I'm doing. And so like I had this simple idea that, um, I'd, I'd moved um, on sort of, I moved back to Appalachia to teach and I, and I was, um, I was just thinking like, man, you know, is this some kind of fate, you know, that I'm back here? And it, it was even weirder than that because um, I'd moved back sort of off of um, 421, which was the, the highway. Um, and I'd lived all, off of it before and it was, and it goes all the way to Harlan. And so like, it was like, is this some kind of, you know, intervention, you know, is it, is it a mistake I'd kind of made and, and I just kind of keep repeating and, and, and then it kind of led to me thinking like, you know, what makes the area unique? And, and, and that thing was that kind of struck me were kind of signs, you know, there were all these kind of religious signs that you were surrounded with day in and day out. And, and I, I just kind of ended up having this thought like, well, you know, what if all these signs are meant for me? You know, like mm. what if somebody's communicating with me and, um, and I'm just ignoring the signs. And so like the body of work that I've been working on is called tiptoeing around the signs to heaven. And, um, and so it's just, you know, me kind of going through and, you know, thinking like, yeah, I'm not religious. And then, you know, maybe somebody's communicating with me and I'm seeing all these signs and I'm surrounded by them and, and, and ignoring them almost. And, um, and I, I just thought it was kind of a fun way to approach, you know, that idea. And, um, and the, in the cross image, particularly, you know, I had a friend who, who told me about it and he said, yeah, it's right around the, the, in my neighborhood and he's like um and i kind of had to convince him he's a photographer too i was like all right you need to tell me where this is and and he was he was kind of a sport about it he came in and he, he had taken a picture of it to show me and and i went back up and i to his house and um made the picture i think i did it twice i actually think i had to go back a second time to make it but yeah but, you know, and I, and when I posted it, I, I made sure to make the point because of family that, you know, I had nothing to do with knocking, um, 
the horizontal beam down, like the horizontal beams laying on a rock that, um, on the ground on a rock that says hope. And, um, I had nothing to do with that. I just, you know, it was there. Um, I just documented it, but, um, Well, Greg, I think your work is massively creative and, you know, I think quite important. Uh, you know, I talk to a lot of people who, you know, maybe don't see themselves in the same way that, that, that I do or the people who are like consuming what they do. Um, but I think like this, this type of storytelling is really important again, because of your sort of non-judgmental lens on it and, your preservation of the sort of stories and history of the region through your work. I think, especially living in New York City and having spent my whole life primarily surrounded by people who, uh, you know, think like me in the sense that like very liberal minded, although right. I, I don't even know what the heck I am politically anymore. Like it's a weird world, but <laughs> I, I think that there's been a tendency to, to look at regions of the country as different or backwards and now like the newer label of like, you know, Trump supporters, which carries its whole, a whole new set of connotations with it. But, um, I, I know through, through traveling and meeting people and, and knowing a very diverse range of people that there's a whole, a whole lot of gray area and a whole lot of nuance and, uh, a lot that can be missed by just sort of looking at the surface level or by generalizing a people. So, um, Absolutely. you know, I want to, in one way, thank you for your work because I think it is important in preserving that, but then also just it's massively creative and entertaining. So I know that this isn't the sole subject you work on. So where can we send people to, to look at your photos and to follow your work from, from here on out? Um, you, Instagram is probably better than Facebook. I also have a website. So the website is um, greg-banks.com um, and the the Instagram is just gregbankshoto. Um, but yeah, follow me. I'm pretty accessible too. Like if you send me a message, I'll message you. I'm pretty good for that kind of stuff as well. Um, I like to interact with people. Um, but thank you. Yeah. That, I mean, I thought, you know, I, I, I'm glad you see it the way I saw it. It was like, man, nobody's done this, this sort of visually, you know, I think there's, there's hints of, um, I've seen hints of, you know, I saw a painting of, um, Sherman Lawson at one point and, um, but, but it, nobody's kind of like put it all together that I'm aware of. And if they have, I would love to, to talk with them, but. Yeah, well, Greg, listen, thank you for uh, for coming on and thanks for letting me uh, share your story and uh, the story of the region through through your lens. Thanks for having me. All right, that is a wrap on episode 210 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you so much to Greg for doing this. I had a great time talking to him. Again, please check out those pictures. They're really fascinating, really creepy and eerie kind of reminds me of like the scary stories to tell in the dark type of stuff that we would read in, uh, we, me, old man Tim, would read in elementary school. But yeah, really cool stuff. So go check him out. 
All right, Voyagers, thank you, as always, for tuning into the podcast. Please, 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 please take care of each other. I will catch you very soon.